Jesus, we lift up our hands in adoration. We lift up our hearts to you, Father. And we praise you and we magnify you and we exalt you, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for worship. Thank you for the Lord's day, the first day of the week that we get to gather and worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, give us hearts of gratitude. Give us hearts of praise. You've given us another day on planet earth to serve you, to honor you. So Lord, let us take hold of what takes place here at church in this hour and a half. And Lord, let us engage you and and receive from your word today. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Amen, amen, amen. You may have a seat. Great to see everyone this morning. Thankful that you are here. I hope y'all have uh, enjoyed our verse-by-verse study through the gospel of Matthew. You know, a lot of times, teaching week in and week out, I have to train my mind. I have to train my heart in my, in my teaching, in my preparation. And I'm always asking the Lord, Lord, show me how to approach this text, Lord. Give me passion. Give me zeal. And one of the things that I feel like the Holy Spirit has given me is he's like, David, when you get up there and preach on Sunday mornings, preach as though it's going to be your very last message and you're going to step into eternity tomorrow. And so I give it my all. I give it my all. I study the word like nobody's business. I ask the Holy Spirit to give me the words to speak and I teach it. But I want to challenge you this morning. What do you do with your hour and a half of worship service every Sunday morning? And I want to challenge you guys this morning is to focus intently. 30 minutes. I'm a 35-minute sermon guy. 35 to 38-minute sermon guy, roughly. Let's, Let's engage the Word of God. Let's push aside the distractions. And let's study this text as if we were going to step into eternity this week. And it was that important because it is. It is the word of God and it transforms us and it changes us. And we want to be heavenly minded people focused on God's mission here in this world. So with that said, let's get into the word and let's focus on the text and let's see what it's saying. Matthew chapter 26, I'm teaching verses 17 through 35 this morning. And let's look at the first three verses and then I'll pray. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Lord, thank you for your word, Lord, as we study it this morning. I pray that you bring it to life, Lord. Let it change our hearts, Lord. Let us focus intently on what you're saying here. Let's study it and let's mine all the treasures found in your word. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Amen. So, in the Passion Week, everything that happens in the text, and for all all of the gospels, in, in every chapter and every verse everything is happening for a reason and there's a sequence 
And here in Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 35, we're studying the, the Last Supper. We're studying the Last Supper that Jesus had in celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. With his, but, but what I want to I look up under that, we're going to study the Last Supper, but I want to go a layer deeper as we study this text, and I want you to see the omniscient Lord, the, the Lord Jesus Christ and all his deity. In this text, as we study the Last Supper, I want you to see what Jesus sees. And Jesus sees the heart of every disciple in the room. He sees into their hearts. He sees what's going on. He knows what's taking place in the mind of each disciple, in their mind and in their heart. Are they aware of that? I'm not sure. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees what's taking place here at the Last Supper in the heart and mind of each of the disciples. I ask you this morning, where is your heart at? Where is your heart when it comes to your devotion to Christ? What plans, what thoughts, what ideas have filled your heart and mind this week? Okay? What we're going to see this morning in our text is this. This is the thesis of my teaching this morning, and it is this. God knows the secret inclinations of all hearts. He knows every thought, every deed, everything we plan. He knows everything in your heart. He knows everything in my heart. He knows those who want to serve him, and he knows those who deep down are resisting him. He sees everything within our souls, and we need to understand that. And that will help us grow, and that will help us take our relationship with God more serious when we see everything, when we understand what he sees in our life. So with that said, the title of my message this morning is Hearts Revealed. Hearts Revealed. Hearts Revealed here at the Last Supper. It's going to take place uh, three times. There's three different situations in this text where Jesus reveals the true heart of what some of the disciples are thinking on the inside. So without further ado, let's dive into it. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So the feast of unleavened bread was actually an eight-day feast. And day one of the feast is what we call the Passover. The feast of unleavened bread is named after the type of bread that Israel was supposed to leave Egypt with. Unleavened bread is what they were supposed to take with them on their journey. Leaven was a symbol of sin. And when Israel left Egypt, they were to leave their sin behind. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Remember what I said? The Feast of Unleavened Bread is an eight-day feast. And, uh, and day one of the feast has got its own name, which is the Passover. So day one, when a person comes to Christ and puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they go into the unleavened bread portion of the feast. You know, God calls us to holiness. God calls us to purity. Now, when you first come to Christ, you don't have it all together. You got a lot of stuff in your life that you have to deal with, a lot of sin in your life that you have to deal with. But... 
through the process of sanctification and being yielded to the Holy Spirit, God grows us in holiness. He helps us and enables us and empowers us by the Holy Spirit to live a life of obedience, to get the leaven out of our life. Okay, we're called to leave sin behind. And so here is a reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then verse 18, he says, And he said, Go into the city a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Verse 19, The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So we see in the text here that Jesus is insistent. He's adamant that him and his disciples keep the Passover, to to keep it. For in the Passover, Jesus is going to show his disciples in us that he is the fulfillment of the Passover. That is why he is wanting to keep it. He, Jesus will be the lamb sacrificed for the sin of the world. We talked about this last week. They were in Egypt. The blood had to be applied to the doorpost, the blood of the lamb. A lamb had to be sacrificed. The death angel came through Egypt, was going to strike down the firstborn, and whoever's whoever's doorpost of their homes was covered with the blood was going to be shed, it was going to be um, spared from God's judgment. And so the blood of Christ applied to the doorpost of our hearts and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. We will not partake in God's judgment. Why? Because the judgment fell on the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our lamb. He is our, just like in the Old Testament, they had to bring a lamb, they had to bring an offering, an animal had to be sacrificed for their sins. Same thing takes place, same thing, same situation for us. You and I need a lamb. You and I need a lamb so that our sins could be forgiven. But our lamb is not a little animal. Our lamb is the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's, he is our Passover. And so they're gonna celebrate that. Verse 20 It says, now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. So I can just just envision this in this upper room. Jesus is sitting there with his disciples and he's going to introduce to them the Lord's Supper. But before he does, he drops a bombshell. He drops a bombshell on his disciples. If you remember, they are very nervous The air is tense in this upper room. If you go over to the Gospel of John, when Jesus made that statement, uh, do not let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, my Father's house are many mansions. He said that in this setting. They were very scared. And he drops this bombshell on them. And here is the first heart revealed in verse 21. Take a look at it. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Jesus, the son of God, the eternal God, knowing their hearts, he reveals one of them is against him. And he uses this word betray. The Greek word is paradetame. It means to turn over, 
to give into the hands of another, to be judged, to be condemned. Y'all know who it was. It was Judas. Judas was turning against the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the moment, as he's making this statement, he doesn't reveal who it is yet. So this is a holy moment, realizing that they are in the presence of God who knew every thought in their heart and mind. So they're all in the room. Jesus says this, and they're like, whoa, how does he know that? It was a very holy moment, realizing they are in the room with God, and he's unveiling their hearts, and he reveals that one of them is going to turn him over, is going to give him into the hands of the Gentiles so that he could be crucified. Verse 22 says, being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. The disciples were vexed. The disciples were in shock. They could not believe what they were hearing. They could not believe what was coming out of his mouth. It was like a scene straight out of the movie Knives Out. They all go into detective mode. They're all looking at each other with deep stares and suspicious eyes. The fingers start pointing in different directions. It's like an investigative scene. Who did it? Who said it? Who thought it? That's what they're thinking. It was a very tense situation. Imagine for a moment the Lord Jesus Christ walking into Calvary Chapel Irmo this morning, coming up here and said, David, step aside. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands up here and he says to all of you, makes this statement. Uh, Truly, one of you will betray me. How would we respond? Me and Eve be like, oh, not me, not me. Maybe him, maybe Andy, maybe Michaela. I don't know, maybe, maybe Eve, maybe, I don't know. We'd all be looking at each other like, who is it? Who is it? It was a very tense moment. It was a very investigative moment. Like, what could, who could this be? You know, let's be honest. We can fool each other. We can fool each other. But understand, friends, God sees straight into each and every heart this morning. This truth that God sees and knows our hearts, I don't know about you, but it causes me to sober up. And it causes me to take matters of faith more serious in my walk with the Lord. Knowing that he sees our hearts, that's comforting and it's a little scary. It's scary if your heart's not in the right place. It's scary if you're harboring sin and rebellion and evil in your heart. It's a very scary thought to know that he sees your heart. But for those who are broken, those who are going through difficult situations, those who have been taken through the ringers of life, and you're facing a difficult situation with your family, with your children, with your life, It is gloriously beautiful to know that Christ sees your heart. He sees your tears. He sees the anguish you're going through. And my friend, when you go through difficult times, God is closer than when you're you're going through difficult times. He's there in a very special and intimate way. 
and we have to trust and we have to rest in that truth. But again, if you're living in rebellion, it can be a very scary thing. And knowing that truth should cause us to sober up and take our relationship with the Lord more serious. Let's continue, verse 23. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, that's very important, is the one who will betray me. In the Passover meal, a common bowl was used to dip their bread in. The common bowl was a picture of close intimacy between family and friends, okay? And so that tells us that all those men that had dipped their food that were using the common bowl, they were not strangers. They were friends. Judas, who we know does this betrayal, was a friend of Jesus. He was not a stranger. Judas was in close relationship, close fellowship with Jesus and the 12 disciples, but only on the outside. His heart was not there. He was there physically, but he wasn't there spiritually. His heart was not in it. His heart was not, even, not, not only not in it, but his heart was against it in his betrayal of Christ. Verse 24, continuing that thought, looking at Judas, Jesus says, the son of man is to go just as is written of him, but woe to that man to whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The first half of verse 24, you know, this is Judas. And think about what Judas chose, okay? Put your thinking caps on. Everything that you know about Christianity, everything that you know about the word of God, everything that you know about the goodness of God, think about this. Judas, in this moment, chose darkness over light. That's what he was doing. Because everything that God is, is perfect, is beautiful, is glorious. And Judas is choosing darkness over light. He's choosing a lie over the truth. And if you remember last week's teaching, he's, be, he's choosing betrayal over devotion. Judas is making the most foolish decision in betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is it foolish, but he is choosing a hard and difficult life. Listen to Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 15 says, good judgment wins favor, but the way of the unfaithful leads to their destruction. Okay? Rebelling, of, rebelling against God is a very unwise decision. It leads to a very difficult life when you go against the word of God. Friends, anyone who chooses to rebel against God in his word is choosing one, a life of misery, a life of confusion, a life of pain, a life of difficulty, and a life ultimately of destruction. That's how terrible it is to walk away from the Lord. Everything he offers us is good perfect and holy. Everything the world offers us is death, darkness, 
and destruction when it comes to our life of faith and our obedience to Christ. And look at the last half of the verse, half, second half of verse 24. He says, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Friends, let's, let's just be real. You're on the clock. You're living life here on planet Earth. You will not live forever. One day, each and every one of us will pass away. And to go through this life and fail to repent and trust in Christ is the absolute worst mistake anybody, any human being can make. There is no greater mistake. There is no greater error in this life than to, than to go through this life and fail to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We have to live with an eternal perspective. Now, I'm believing the Lord and I got strong faith, whatever. I'm believing, I'm hoping, I'm hoping for a long life. Maybe I get 80, maybe I get 90, maybe I get a little more, I don't know. But even that amount of life is just a drop of water. It's just a drip of water compared to the length of eternity. Friends, there's nothing more important than our eternal salvation. Don't play religion. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to grow you in holiness. It begins with grace. It is by grace. It ends with grace. It's all his work, but yield your life to him. Friend, we will live forever. This world, everyone in this world will live forever. It's only a matter of location. Heaven is real. Hell is real. And once you step into eternity, it is final. You will be in that state forever. I don't know about you, but I'm taking Jesus serious. And I'm going to love him, trust him, and follow him with all my heart because he has saved me from the wrath to come. He saved me from the judgment of hell. And one day I'm going to get to spend eternity with him. And we need to be reminded of that. Verse 25. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. So Judas here in verse 25, if you go back and look at verse 22, all Judas is doing here is he is echoing what the disciples said in verse 22. They said in verse 22, um, each one began to say, surely not I, Lord. And here in verse 25, um, uh, Judas repeats it, surely not I. Notice he calls him rabbi. He calls him teacher. Doesn't call him Lord. He acknowledges him as teacher, but he doesn't acknowledge him as Lord. So Judas is just echoing the disciples. And I can't help but to place myself there in that upper room to think about how this um, conversation was taking place. And I can't help but to think that Jesus looks deep into the eyes of Judas. And he puts the responsibility for Judas's betrayal squarely where it belongs, on Judas. 
this was a choice made by Judas. And I base that position, if you look at the end of verse 25, look at Jesus' words. He says, you, not them, not they, not it. Jesus' words, verse 25, you have said it, and there it is again, your, you and the yourself, you have said it yourself. He puts the responsibility squarely on him because Jesus had held Judas as a friend. Yes, Jesus held Judas as a friend with respect and esteem. Listen to Psalm chapter 41, verse nine. This is a prophecy concerning their relationship. Psalm 41, nine says, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So it says there in Psalms 41, nine, that he was a close friend, one in whom I trusted, one whom I shared my bowl with in fellowship. But yet now he's turning away and he's betraying Christ. What was that moment like? I imagine the hearts were pounding. It was a very difficult situation. This was Judas looking into the eyes of Jesus, looking into the eyes of God, looking into the eyes of the creator of the universe who spoke and the worlds came into existence. And this was the eyes of God looking deep into the heart of Judas, revealing to him his true situation. I imagine it was very, very difficult. And as the other disciples, what was it like for them as Judas and Jesus were having this one-on-one conversation. We know from John chapter 13, verse 30, that after this little dialogue between um, Jesus and Judas, John 13, 30 tells us that Judas leaves the room and the text says he went out into the night. Now we know that this is late at night, somewhere between 10 p.m. and midnight, maybe even a little bit later, but it's interesting that it says Judas went out into the night. Now the text clearly is talking about in the nighttime, but I can't help but to think about what was going on in Judas's heart as he, as he did the deed, as he did the deal. He left the room, he left the upper room where they were, he departed from Christ and he went out into the night. He went out into the darkness. I can't imagine the, the anguish of heart the anguish of, in their mind to, to turn against God, to betray God. And, and friends, don't let nobody say otherwise. When somebody turns from the Lord, there's a lot of anguish. There is a lot of pain as they go into the night. Next week, we'll pick it up where Judas comes back in. But all for 30 pieces of silver. He's going to betray him. So Judas leaves the room between verses 25 and 26, according to John chapter 13, verse 30. And now with his disciples, we have the very first Lord's Supper. Look at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
the Old Testament system of sacrificing lambs was coming to an end. Judaism and the system for the forgiveness of sin of sacrificing a lamb is coming to an end. And Jesus is here in this upper room with his disciples and he is saying to them, as he says to the world through his word, that this bread represents his body that will be sacrificed on the altar of Calvary, consumed in God's holy judgment for our sin. The punishment, the wrath, the judgment for our sin fell on the Lamb of God at the altar of Calvary. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the condemnation fell on Jesus. And Christ's perfect righteousness came to you and was given to you as a free gift. So this is huge. This is the beginning of the New Testament. This is the, this is the beginning, this is the foundation of the gospel that Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was the lamb. And partaking of the Lord's Supper, which we will do next Sunday, we are reflecting and we are remembering that great sacrifice he made for us. Verse 27 and 28. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So God is cutting a covenant with this world in his blood that whosoever puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the blood shed by Jesus at the cross of Calvary, according to this covenant, they will receive forgiveness of sin. How beautiful and how glorious is that? This cup, this cup that's being passed, that the, the disciples are partaking of here as they celebrate the Passover. This is the Passover transitioning into the Lord's Supper. This cup it is representing the precious, atoning, soul-cleansing, life-giving blood of the Lamb of God on the altar of Calvary. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It is by his shed blood that we are forgiven. Just as well as in the Old Testament, they were forgiven under the Old Testament sacrificial systems, so you and I are forgiven and given new life and are in this covenant for, for our forgiveness of our sin through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin does not come by confessing your sin to me. It doesn't come by uh, giving money to a church. It doesn't come by any other way except by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Another reason, this is very important, and I don't hear it talked a lot about in churches, but Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But another reason that we celebrate the Lord's Supper is in it, we look forward. 
We look forward to the future millennial reign of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is coming a feast. There is coming a feast in heaven that each and every believer from all the ages will get to partake in. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day, you and I will sit at a heavenly banquet table with Jesus and with all Christians of all ages, and we will celebrate with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his victory over sin, over death, over hell and the grave. And it's gonna be glorious. And I bet it's gonna be quite tasty and I'm looking forward to it. And I hope you are too. But it's gonna be a feast as we, sit, as we feast with the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Verse 30, this is really cool. Uh, this is just really awesome because you know, we don't think about this a lot with Jesus. But verse 30 says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. How cool is that? How cool is that? That Jesus and the disciples are singing on the evening before his crucifixion, knowing how tense it was, knowing how difficult it was, knowing what had taken place with Judas there in the room, knowing all the, the, the things that were taking place, they were able to reel it in and they were able to sing a hymn. They were able to sing a hymn of praise to God in such a difficult hour. The Passover meal always ended with the singing of the Hallel, which is Psalm 116 through 118. So if you go read those three Psalms, that tells you what the disciples were singing, what the disciples were singing in the upper room. I wanna give you a little piece of it. So as they're sitting in the room, they would have sang Psalm 116 verses three through four. And think about these words as they're singing this song in the upper room and Jesus knowing what's fixing to take place. Oh, the deep and rich meaning of this song that he was preparing his disciples for. The chords I don't know how they sing it. I don't, I don't want to try to sing it, but, but just, just know they were singing it. Um, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. You know, Christ throughout his earthly ministry, he was a man of sorrows. He was a man of tears. There, we don't read nowhere in the gospels where Jesus laughed but we see in the gospels where Jesus was filled with sorrow, filled with difficulty. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus. Wait till next week. Next week, next Sunday, we're gonna look at the wine press of God's judgment there in the garden of Gethsemane. But these men, this, these, they weren't happy. This wasn't joyful, man. I think this was serious. And I think that this was, uh, it was very intentional but it was difficult. But then verse four of that Psalm, they sang, then I called upon the name of the Lord, Lord save me. And does not God save us? In this difficult hour, this is somewhere between 10 p.m. and midnight on that Thursday night, Jesus is gonna be crucified the next day. They're filled with distress and sorrow. And then on Friday, the good Friday where he's crucified, they are gonna be crushed. 
they are going to be perplexed. And then on Saturday, the Bible doesn't tell us what took place on that Saturday, but I can only imagine as Jesus was crucified, laid in a borrowed tomb, what that Saturday must have been like. It was a very hard and difficult day, but what happens on that Sunday morning? Jesus Christ rises from the dead and all of a sudden the disciples realize everything he said was true. It changes the world. So truly, verse four, then I called upon the name of the Lord, Lord save me. God's, this was God's plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world. And it's all coming together under his sovereign plan. So they sing this song and they go out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, and here we have the second heart revealing. So he's revealed Judas's heart. Look at the second one, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. He says there in verse 31, notice Jesus's words in red, you will all fall away. So here, before it happens, Jesus is telling his disciples and he's revealing to them each and every one of them's hearts. Their hearts, the disciples' hearts, were not ready to take in all that was happening. Their hearts were pounding. The tensions were building. The disciples are weak and feeble at this point in the gospel, okay? Remember, it's not until Pentecost, it's not until the Holy Spirit comes that the lion roars and the lion's gonna roar. And these men who are feeble, weak, no backbone, following Jesus by the, by just barely clinging on to him are gonna become ferocious, godly, baptized in the Holy Spirit, spirit-filled men of God that are gonna roar like a lion and they are gonna change the world. All but one of the disciples will be martyred for Christ, all except John. They will all give their life in defense of the gospel and preaching the gospel. It's amazing. But here, as we're approaching the Calvary, their, their hearts were not ready for it. Their hearts were not ready for it. Just like our heart wasn't ready for it before we got saved. You know, we weren't ready to embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We weren't ready for the demands of the Christian faith to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, to live your life and surrender to him. But then once you repented and put your trust in Christ and you became born again, God empowered you by the Holy Spirit to live a life of dedication to him. Same situation. Well, I believe we're at verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You know, Peter, I love Peter. I love Peter. Uh, he makes such an emotional statement. I love his zeal. I love his passion. But the one thing he doesn't have yet that he's going to receive shortly is the Holy Spirit. He's going to be empowered. He's got the zeal. He, he, he's got the passion. But, he, but, but still, he's wrestling. 
He's struggling. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in his grace, is revealing that to him. He says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Within a couple hours, within a couple hours, at the voice of a young lady by a fire, he will deny Christ. But that's, this is before his conversion. You, read, you go to Acts chapter two, Peter preaches one of the most powerful sermons that cuts to the hearts of the Jews in Israel. It's an amazing uh, thing to see before the Holy Spirit. His, he has passion, he has zeal, but he needs the Spirit. But once he gets the Spirit, watch out. He sets the world on fire. Then the third heart revealing. So he's revealed the, he's revealed the disciples. He showed them their true heart. He sees their heart. And now he goes to an individual person in verse 34. This is the third heart revealing that Jesus reveals our hearts. Verse 34 says, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus reveals to Peter, Peter, you're not gonna last two hours. You're not, gonna, you're, not, you're not gonna be able to make it. Peter has the zeal, he has the emotion, he's caught up in the moment, but it's not until the spirit comes. Jesus says this because he knows the heart of Peter and he's gonna show him grace. He doesn't condemn him, he doesn't damn him, he has a plan for Peter and he sees Peter's zeal, he see, sees uh, Peter's passion but at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, everything changes and Peter is set on fire. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Can, you, can we just say thank you, Lord, for grace? Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for second chances. You know, we blow it many times. Many times we say, man, I'm gonna do this for God. I'm gonna do that for God. I'm gonna live sold out for him. And a couple days later, we, we find ourselves getting off track of what we told God we were gonna do. Thank you, Lord, for second chances. Thank you, Lord, for grace. And that is truly the God that we serve. Verse 35, Peter doubles down. Again, I love his zeal, I love his passion. All the disciples they, they follow his lead according to verse 35. Uh, but we know that shortly Peter will deny Jesus and fail to carry out the statement. But in the book of Acts, but in the book of Acts, these men become bold as lions. And what makes the difference is the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and empowering him. That tells us the power and work of the Spirit in our lives. He takes weak, feeble, men like me and he transforms us and he changes us and he empowers us and men and ladies to be difference makers in this world, to go out and proclaim the gospel, to teach people, to disciple, to show people there is a better way in serving Christ. So what does this passage teach us this morning? What is the, what is the application of, of verses 17 through 35 
as it deals, as it relates to our, our journey and our walk with Christ. I wanna give you three. What does this passage teach us? Jesus has been in the upper room, the last supper, he's instituted this. But again, the secondary layer of this text is Jesus is, is revealing their hearts. We know all about the Lord's Supper. We practice it once a month. But what does this teach us about God revealing our hearts? What is the application for us to know today as we study this text? Number one, it teaches us that God knows every thought and intention of our heart. He knows our hearts. Again, if there's something evil, something wicked, some rebellion, bring it to his throne of grace. Understand he sees it and understand he's waiting for you to bring it to his throne of grace so you can repent. If you're going through a difficult situation, if you're, if you're heartbroken, you're going through trying times and life's thrown you a curveball, understand this, God sees exactly where you're at. He sees exactly where you're at in life. Whatever situation you are facing, he is there to walk you through it. And he will. He'll walk you through everything that you face in this life. <clears throat> this passage teaches us to be careful not to be driven by emotion. Not to be driven by emotion and feelings. That's what's going on in this room. The disciples are going, they are being driven by their emotions and their feelings. And we as Christians cannot be driven by our emotions and our feelings. We need to be driven by the word of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, living our lives and surrender to him. Knowing that our emotions and our feelings and our thoughts and what we think is right, what we think is, you know, all that stuff that happens in life, it's gonna come, it's gonna go, but God's truth never changes. Hebrews 13, eight says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word never changes. That is our anchor. That is what we operate on, not by emotions and feelings. And ultimately, this text this morning that we've looked at, it teaches us ultimately to follow God's word, to follow God's word and to be led by the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite Bible verses is Psalm 119, verse 105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When the times seem dark and our life seems like it's, 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 it's difficult to go through and it's trying times and it's difficult times and it's dark times spiritually, what we need to do is open up the word of God open up God's word and let his word be the lamp for our feet. Let his word be the lamp for our life. Let him light up the path of our life in this dark world. Let us take that to heart. And then Romans eight fourteen. 14, uh, you, you, you gotta have the word and you gotta have the Holy Spirit. There's just, just no way around it. That's the two things that drive the believer. Romans 8, 14 says, all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? You receive the Holy Spirit 
by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, by, by um, saying, God, please forgive me of all my sin. Lord, I put my trust in you, Lord Jesus, and please come into my heart. Please come into my life. And when you surrender your life to the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit and the word of God that will take us through this life, not our emotions and not our feelings. So friends, hang on, hang on, hang on to the word of God, follow God's word, treasure God's word, love God's word. It's his love letter to us. It is his inspired word to us and we got to cling to it and we got to believe what it says. We got to believe everything it says as it relates to our life, to our family, to our children, to the future, to, the, to everything. We got to believe what the word of God says. Maybe I'm preaching to myself right now. And then we got to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Now, once you repent and put your trust in Christ, he's there. 100% of God is there. The Holy Spirit is, is, dwell, is, is indwelling. He's inside, he's living inside of you. But I think on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, we need to bow our heads and say, Lord, give me a willing heart and help me uh, be yielded. That's the word, yield, as, the, as, as for the believer. Lord, help me to yield my life today in complete surrender to your Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we'll stay faithful to Christ and we'll follow his plan for our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Help us to live by it. Help us to follow it. And Lord, we, we don't cast judgment on these disciples. We understand the situation. Matter of fact, many of us look back at our life and we've seen times where we've been driven by emotion and, and by feelings in, in the heat of the moment in, in, in difficult times. But Lord, help us to come back to your word. Help us to trust in your word. Help us to follow your word. And Lord, help us all leave here today in, in being yielded to your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this study. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the blood. We thank you for your, you giving yourself for our sin at Calvary. Lord, help us today put all those together. Your sacrifice, forgiveness of sin, and you see each and every heart. And Lord, I pray for each and every believer and those watching online, whatever difficulty they're facing in this life right now, whatever challenge has come their way and is knocking on their door, I pray, Lord, that you'll keep them strong. Keep us strong in this difficult life. Keep us strong. 
Help us to keep our eyes on you. For Lord, we love you and we praise you. For it's in Jesus' awesome name I pray. Amen.